Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, as the Halloween season draws near, there's only one show we can review. It's the show nearest and dearest to our hearts. It's a WCW Halloween Havoc. Kyush, how are there still more of these left to do? It feels like we've done them all. You know, WCW only existed as a real thing for 10 years. So it's incredible that we've been doing this for so fucking long. And I feel like we even had a year where we did like nothing but Halloween Havocs for the month of October. And here we are. We still have like three or four more to do. Well, thankfully, with the announcement that NXT is doing a Halloween Havoc special, you know, three or four years from now, we'll be able to do that one. That's a good point. It's funny because when we started this podcast, literally this podcast began as it was just going to be like a WrestleMania anthology, wasn't it? And you were just going to have people come on and talk about like their favorite WrestleManias. And yet it has transformed into our favorite show is Halloween Havoc, and we can't wait to talk about it. And I just love how when this started, I'm sure we were like, man, they should bring back Halloween Havoc, the Great American Bash, Bash at the Beach, In Your House. And now all of those things have happened. Shit, they brought between, back Nitro and a- just called it Dynamite. <laughs> yeah, between AEW and... Yeah, they basically brought back WCW. It's just called AEW now. But yeah, our dreams are coming true between NXT... Yeah, I mean, gotta respect that Triple H just seems to do, like, the things... We, like, Triple H brings back every show we wanted to see. Yeah. And that's because Triple H is basically us. Like, oh, he is yeah. Just, he's just the biggest goddamn WCW mark there ever was. Oh, yeah, I guarantee me and him could sit down and shoot the shit about, like, Crockett and WCW for hours. I mean, I'm going to get started trying to get him onto the show, but I don't like our odds. <laughs> um, So I guess we should say well, what show we're covering. It's Halloween oh, yeah. Havoc 1996. Uh, so this is, you know, right as WCW is getting hot. Um, they're a few months into the NWO storyline. We've covered the couple pay-per-views that lead up to this. We've done Bash at the Beach. We've done um, Hogwild. And we've done Fall Brawl. Those are all pretty excellent pay-per-views. They were really on a roll. Um, we haven't done the Great American Bash from this year, but that was a great show, too. I watched that back in the summer. The important thing to remember about this year is that everything's not where it needs to be yet. Like, the NWO has just started to really hit on all cylinders, But, like, the rest of the card is still, like, getting reshuffled from, like, whatever nonsense, like, based the whole company around Glacier shit was going on six months prior to this. Yeah, they're still in transition, but, like, they've hit on the big idea at this point. And, like, it's going to take till more like 97 for them to be strong up and down the card but it's going in the right direction like they've got the cruiserweights now they've got some of the tag teams in place they've got some good stuff too but there's also as we'll see there's some stuff on the show that just falls completely flat yeah it's just weird to see like the nwo and hollywood hogan are like fully formed characters already but like so many of the people that you associate with that time like eddie guerrero is still like his mustachioed 90s self DDP uh, sucks. Yeah, DDP's still got the cigar and everything. Harlem Heat are still basically slaves. It's There's a lot of WCW still left in this company. Yeah. Um, the NWO has been growing both in size and power. Um, at Hogwild in August, Hogan beat the Giant to win the WCW title. Um, I've heard that the 1-2-3 kid was supposed to debut there and help Hogan win the belt, but... 
that WCW legal got cold feet um, after they got sued by the WWF for trademark infringement. So they held off on kids debut until they felt like they were on kind of sound legal ground and how they were going to use them. Probably smart. <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple of weeks after that, the giant joined the NWO along with Ted DiBiase. So first Ted DiBiase appears at the front row on nitro and he just like looks at the camera and he goes, next week, five. Maybe you thought he was joining the Four Horsemen. He was not. He joined the NWO. So did the Giant. That brought the NWO up to five members. A um, couple things about this. Never been a big fan of putting the Giant in the NWO. I don't think this added much of anything. The NWO already has a Giant in Kevin Nash. Yeah, if anything, it seemed like this was a really good opportunity to have the Giant as one of the people who fought the yeah. NWO. Because he's one of the few believable people who could fight off like 20 guys at the same time. Yeah. Putting him in there, it's really just like the beginning of the Big Show's run as just, well, no idea what to do with this asshole. Let's turn him heel. And the NWO just stole the world title from him a couple weeks before this. They and treated now... him like a pack of shit. Yeah. They left Why him lying for 20 them? minutes. Why on earth would he join up with these guys after they stole the belt from him? It's just stupid. Um, so I've heard he was a last-minute replacement for the British Bulldog. Who was, yeah, that would not have been good. Dad Jeans Bulldog in the NWO with his fucking fanny pack. If they had called him Dad Jeans Bulldog, I would have been on board for that. Um... Bulldog wanted out of his WWF contract. He had been really upset with um, the storyline they had run where Diana, his wife Diana, was claiming Shawn Michaels had sexually harassed her. He was not happy with that. I think he was getting some heat at home um, from Stu and Helen about how that was going. So he was about to leave, but then they worked out a new contract with him, paid him a bunch of money. So I've heard that... Um, Giant was a last-minute replacement for Bulldog. Giant better than the Bulldog. The Bulldog in the NWO would have been horrible. Yeah, I mean, Bulldog coming over would have been a more shocking moment. He just wouldn't have been a particularly good fit for the group. Whereas the Giant is just kind of a big blank canvas to paint whatever on. Yeah, and I feel like this illustrates the difference between, like, how Hall and Nash see the NWO and how Bischoff sees it. Like, Hall and Nash are like, this is a gang, like... We want cool people in this. Bischoff just sees it more as like, this is the WWF invading WCW. And like, and, obviously Big Show Giant is not a WWF guy, but like, I think it's he's the avatar for Andre the Giant. It's also interesting that right about this time is where Nash and Hall kind of start splitting off from the rest. Yeah. They're just like, we'll be the cool people over here and you yeah. go do whatever bullshit you want over there. So even yeah, though the Wolf Pack doesn't exist for like an up, another couple of years, it already kind of starts existing here. Yeah, they do start to do that. You see, they're not as involved with Hogan after this. It's like two separate worlds. It's like what they're doing and then what Hogan's doing and then the rest of the show. And they're both good. There's merit to both of them. But like Hogan's an actual heel, whereas, you know, Hall and Nash are cool heels. And it's probably smart that they separated them out, too, because, yeah... There's nobody in the world who's getting cheered against Hall and Nash at this point. <laughs> no. 
Oh, man, they're so over tonight in Vegas. It's nuts. And they should be. They fucking rule. They're the coolest people in the world. And after this, I bet they were on the floor at the MGM Grand till about 6 in the morning. Yeah. They live the gimmick, man. Uh, there was a War Games match at Fall Brawl. It was Team WCW versus Team NWO. Team WCW is Sting, Lex Luger, Ric Flair, and Arn Anderson. Team NWO, Hogan, Hall, Nash, and a mystery fourth man. So the week before Fall Brawl, Sting appears to turn on WCW and join the NWO. Sting insists that he was actually in Japan and the Sting we saw was an imposter. But the WCW guys don't believe him. Sting feels betrayed by WCW, and he ultimately walks out of the War Games match. The NWO ends up getting the win against the outnumbered Team WCW. Yeah, if you've ever heard, haven't heard our show about that fall brawl, it's one of my favorite shows that we've ever done because that's one of my favorite angles in wrestling history. It's just this idea of a betrayed Sting feeling like, how could you possibly not trust me? I've been through everything for this company. Yeah. I've been through everything for all of you. While all of you, Luger, Flair, all of you have betrayed me repeatedly. Oh, a million times. And they've betrayed the fans. They, all of those other guys left for WWF. Sting stayed the whole time. Sting carried this company. And now they don't believe him and they think he screwed them. And so he walks into war games, beats the shit out of everybody, yeah. spits on the ground and leaves. Yeah. And then the next night on Nitro, he cuts uh, the back to the camera promo, which I love. He won't even look at the camera where he says that he's a free agent and you won't be seeing the stinger around for a long time. Which so that's the be- yeah, beginning yeah. of Crow Sting. I mean, beginning of the greatest run of his career. Yeah. A year and a half later should have been. It culminates in what could have been at the time the biggest match in the history of professional wrestling. It doesn't rem- isn't remembered that way, but they did everything right on the way in. Yeah, I mean, this ends up being one of the greatest builds ever, probably the greatest build to a match to this point in history. I mean, For I'd sure. still argue. I mean, there are matches that drew more, but I don't know if there was ever a match better built than Hogan and Sting. The time they took to get there. Yeah, if I really think about, like, matches in the history of wrestling that were bigger, it's, like, a short list. You got, like, Hogan Andres in there. You got, Rock like, and Cena. Rock and Cena, and you got Rock in, in uh, Austin. Austin, at 17. Yeah. That's That's the four matches. Short list. And I would say that this was better built to than any of those other three. Rock and Austin is the biggest, best version of this, but it had a terrible build. One of the it, yeah, worst they, ever. They had, yeah, they only had a couple of weeks to build it. And like, easy to forget. That was not, like, the Deborah stuff was cringeworthy. Like, they really kind of rebuilt, they built that match in, like, one promo two weeks out, but they almost, they had to, like, kind of retcon everything that had happened to that point. Yeah, the idea that you would spend a year and a half steadily resisting the urge to get that money now resisting the urge to just do it because people want it so bad even it's like luckily it's not like they had to worry about like ratings or anything because they were killing it all during that period but just to steadily week to week continue building that feud is something that's really unprecedented in wrestling history (laughs) 
the net also on that nitro the one two three kid debuted as the newest member of the nwo he was dubbed six i think that's but one great addition to the roster that they're getting this incredibly talented young guy as he's entering his prime and also like love six in the nwo i think he was exactly the element they needed he's the perfect fit you got a guy who's in a different division from everybody else. Yeah. You got a guy who naturally plays well off of Hall and Nash and they're best friends in real life. You got a guy who's younger than everybody else who like gives you some more of that youth feel. And I mean he sucks at promos, but at least he can, you know, yell, make some noise. Make some noise. And a guy whose ass anybody can kick. That's the thing, yeah. The guy who can take jobs. Finally you have someone in this organization who will lose a match. Yeah. And he can main event house shows because it's the NWO against WCW. He yeah. can main event against Ric Flair, Lex Luger, and lose and send the fans home happy. I'm amazed they didn't even do more of that kind of stuff. Just be like, oh, we're going to get our one-up. Luger's going to finally get back at the NWO by tra- torture-racking the shit out of six tonight on Nitro. Yeah. You love to see it. Yeah. Um, so our main event tonight is going to be Hogan defending the WCW title against Randy Savage as they renew one of the most legendary and successful rivalries in wrestling history. Um, some intrigue going on with both men's contracts. Allegedly, Hogan's contract was expiring. And I think this is this may have been the time he had lunch with Vince somewhere very public. Yes. And like even... Wasn't that the crux of that meeting that even Vince knew he was being yeah, used for more money? Did. But, you know, Vince was going to cost Ted some money. It was worth it. It's not even really all that fun to think about. Because if Hogan had come back to WWE in 1996, oh, no. it's almost hard to say that it would it have made a huge might difference. Have destroyed, might have destroyed the Attitude Era. Yeah. Because, like, WWE wouldn't have tried to build anything else out around it. And I don't, Hogan alone wasn't going to get it done. So, honestly, it may have killed both companies. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, Hogan, like, had met Vince for lunch, like, I don't know, like, in the lobby of a hotel where he knew they'd get noticed. Like, just the most blatant, like, leverage move imaginable. Yep, and he gets everything he wants, which, of course, he was going to. He's never been more valuable than he is at this moment anyway. More intriguing, Savage's contract is up, and it seems like it was more of a serious possibility that he was going to leave. I think there actually were negotiations with the WWF here, and then they ended very abruptly. And after that, Savage was persona non grata in the WWF, which has, I think, led to a lot of speculation over the years as to what happened here. Yeah, as much as everybody likes to talk about, like, the Stephanie thing or whatever for why Randy was blacklisted for so long, I think it really comes down to this one meeting and whatever the hell was said in it. Because Randy still had a lot of hurt feelings from when Vince thought he was washed up and demanded that he be a commentator. And I kind of feel like that all came out. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just, like... Vince felt like Randy let him on here and like kind of stabbed him in the back again when he re-signed with WCW here. I mean, people have speculated this is when Vince found out that Randy and Stephanie had been involved. Like, hard, to, you know, we don't know. I know, but 
only a couple people know the answers here and none of them are talking. Yeah. So, I mean, it is what it is. I, it would have been very interesting for Randy to go again. I don't think it would have made a huge impact one way or the other, but he, maybe he'd still be part of the business because the rest of his WCW run, basically from this point on is kind of a huge bummer. I mean, he does get the, he gets the WCW, he gets the, um, the DDP feud in 97, which is one of the best feuds of the year. But after that, it goes downhill fast. Yeah, something about this period is when he realizes, like, hey, I'm about done, and I got to start putting people over who I want to put over. Yeah, he goes through his midlife crisis, both, like, on and off screen. And then, yeah, just it winds down, and he does he's not really part of WCW at the end. And then he doesn't go back to the WWF, and he does, like, one or two shots in TNA, and that's it. Yep. Yeah. But, yeah, beginning of the end here, I mean, I would have seen the logic in leaving WCW because they don't have any huge plans for him at this point. No, not at all. And I'm sure they didn't want to pay him a ton of money. I'm sure he winds up still getting plenty of money, but, like, he's not worth as much as when they first signed him and they desperately needed somebody of that caliber. No. But... One of the biggest things he brought with them was the Slim Jim sponsorship, and this is, of course, Slim Jim's Halloween Havoc. One of the wildest things in wrestling history, and it's something that never really gets talked about, but is the fact that sponsorships don't... If, if Slim Jim sponsors WWE, they do, nobody else has ever just been like, oh, we're actually going to stick with the guy in our commercials yeah. and not the person who pays us and who we pay that we do business with. They abandon WWE and just follow Randy. That's nuts. Yeah. And as Bischoff has said many times, he basically got Randy Savage for free once you take into account the revenue they got from the Slim Jim sponsorship. Yeah, why would you ever let him go if he pays for himself? Like, yeah. why not? Like, yeah, they got one of the be- biggest stars in wrestling and... They basically didn't have to spend any money on him because the money they were paying him was just money they were getting from Slim Jim for sponsorship. What a coup. Works out great for everybody. And once Slim Jim starts sponsoring Halloween Havoc, from then on, like, Halloween Havoc is really WCW's biggest show, more so than Starcade. Oh, yeah. You can tell that there's more money being pumped into it. It has an actual big-time sponsor, and... It's in it's it's in an awesome arena at the MGM Garden instead of, you know, Nashville like Starcade was this year. And it just feels big. Every single Halloween Havoc we've ever covered, but especially from here on, has a gigantic main event. With the exception of like 2000, but that's 2000. We're Company's not dead by that point. Yeah. And Goldberg versus Chronic man main event anywhere in the world. Oh boy. But yeah, you can really see there's more effort being put into st- being put into Halloween Havoc here, with kind of the exception of '97, where I'm a little surprised they just didn't do Sting and Hogan at Halloween Havoc. Like people, it were, almost seems would, like a, it a was better. Time, it was time for it. It seems like Halloween Havoc too is a better fit yeah. for Sting, but you know it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, so to get into the show, it's Sunday, October 27th, 1996. We're at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. A crowd of about 10,000 on hand. 
8390 paid for a $224,000 gate. That was a new company record for WCW at the time. Gosh. Yeah. So I mean, they're moving up, moving fist. up in the world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, although you think about those ticket prices, what that's an average $30 ticket. Yeah. Pay-per-view ticket prices have changed a lot. <laughs> I don't, can you get a seat at a pay-per-view for 30 bucks at this point? I doubt it. I've never attended a pay-per-view for that exact reason. Like yeah, to get anywhere, hundred bucks for the upper deck. Like, yeah, within a hundred feet of the ring, it, you can't get for less than three digits. So it's just not even worth it. Uh, the show does a 0.7 buy rate for about 250,000 buys. That doubles up the previous year where um, Hogan fought the Giant in both a monster truck match and a wrestling match. Uh, we did that one back in the day. May need to re- repost that in the archives because that is one of our most ridiculous episodes. The idea that we ever had a match that was a match but also a monster truck fight. And I didn't say race. I said fight. <laughs> it's, it's something and that I'll always treasure yet, in my heart. And the Yeti showed up to attack Hulk Hogan. That was and the same somehow, show, you're right. Somehow, a year later, Kevin Sullivan is still booking, and he's <laughs> actually turned things around, believe it or not. Which anybody would have, you would have bet the world against at that point. Like, it was like a coach of a football team taking the team 0-60. It's like Matt, it would be like if Matt Patricia led the Lions to the Super Bowl next year, instead of getting his badass fired. Well, if you compare that to this, it'd be like if he went 0-16 and then 16-0 and the next year. Like, yeah. he is literally succeeding at everything he books now. Whereas, literally, he had the Yeti and Blood Runs Cold and Monster Trucks and every single gimmick up and down the roster was trash all at the same so time. So bad. The worst of the worst to the best of the best. That's the WCW story. One man um, presided over it all. Pretty good opening promo here with some, you know, spooky themes to it and, you know, really pumps up the Hogan Savage match. And then we come into the arena. We are welcomed to the show by our hosts, uh, Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan and Dusty Rhodes. And um, uh, Mike Tanay will join the commentary team for the Cruiserweight match. Um, Pretty good night on commentary from these guys, I thought. I enjoy this team. My favorite thing about this team and my favorite thing about them during this night is that during almost every match, like Bobby will say one thing and then there'll be a beat. And then Dusty Rhodes will say the exact same shit. And they'll both point it out to each other like, hey, I just said that. And I don't think that they genuinely knew because it's so clear that they're not listening to each other whatsoever. Not a lot of prep work being done by those two. No, but it's kind of adorable, too, where it's just like they say it in such different ways that if they didn't point it out, you wouldn't have even known they were saying the same thing. You don't really get the sense any of these guys spent any time thinking about this other than when they were like on live calling the shows. Just feels like beyond that, they were thinking they were thinking about anything else in the world. Dusty may have Dusty may have still been helping book at this point. I'll take that back. But. That was actually always my favorite thing about Tony Schiavone is that like he came from such a wildly different place than like Jim Ross did where Jim Ross would be like he'd be orchestrating like this incredible 50 pages of notes deep 
He knows everything about every guy. He knows every detail of every show. He's practiced his facial expressions in the mirror. And Tony Schiavone just rolled in in his Hawaiian shirt. He's like, what are we doing tonight? Cage match? Cool. <laughs> yeah. Schiavone watches, like, these guys all just kind of watch the show as we do, and they're just taking it in. But, like, that's also very difficult to do as a play-by-play announcer, because he doesn't know what's going to happen yeah. at all. Bischoff, Bischoff did not believe in, like, smartening up the announcers, which I think is actually kind of an interesting approach. Yeah. So what I've you gone, get is— I've gone back and forth on it over the years on whether I agree with it or not. I mean, what you get is a lot of the time when the matches aren't interesting, they don't have anything prepared to spice them up, so those matches stay super not interesting. But when something's exciting, you, like, get that feel from the announcers. Sometimes you get gold because you get their great natural reaction. Like, I don't know if they knew what was going to happen after the main event here. I don't know. Probably not. not. Maybe Dusty knew, but I don't think Tony knew. But, like... But that's when when the product starts going bad in, like, 99. Like, you can hear it in Shivani's voice. They'll just be openly shitting on what's going on. And that that's not what you want. Uh, opening match for the Cruiserweight title, we've got Rey Mysterio defending against Dean Malenko. Uh, Mike Tanay joins the commentary team for this match. I'm a big Mike Tanay fan, always a big fan of especially his work. Uh, with the cruiserweight division in this era, I think he went a long way towards getting this division over. Oh, absolutely. And like, I, I think there's always a, when we talk about a three man booth, including somebody like Tony Schiavone is like the perfect example of that because he adds something that nobody else has. Like it's a it's an element of like Knowledge. what's going on on the shows. Yeah, he knows everything, but like he knows everything in the way that like a diehard fan would know it. Like he's literally watched every tape of every show from Mexico and Japan and Britain. And he can tell you everything about every guy and what all the moves are called. Yeah. Filling in the backstory, explaining the traditions of Lucha Libre, explaining what the moves are like. Yeah. Huge help. I mean, I just don't think this division works if it's like just Dusty and Shivani and Heenan doing it. Cause like, Heenan's just going to crack jokes about these guys being short, and Shivani doesn't know enough about them to get them over. And Dusty Rhodes is basically just doing his best Don West of, wow, that was really cool. Daddy! Yeah. I don't know what that was. You see him do that flip right there? Uh, Mysterio's been the Cruiserweight champ since July when he beat Malenko for the belt on Nitro. Um, Mysterio is just fucking amazing at this point in his career like yeah, this is the peak of his powers like he's so athletic he's so smooth. he couldn't do like honestly no, it's just amazing to watch i mean knowing later in his career i mean even to this day he's still really good but i mean can't do this stuff anymore I mean, how could you? It's not a surprise when you find out that his knees have basically become yeah. black holes later on. Because literally every move that he does involves him, like, compressing his knees. Like, he doesn't take it easy for one second of any of his matches. And the beating he takes in these matches. Since guys can just throw him around and slam him down, however. Like, Malenko does some shit to him in this match that had me cringing. <laughs> Uh, so part of the story here is, I guess, Malenko ripped off Mysterio's mask on Nitro. Malenko brings the mask with him to the ring, but 
Mysterio gets it away and then takes off the mask he's wearing and puts on this other mask. That was actually a really cool moment. Just like, ah, I'm going to take that mask back. I'm going to put it on in front of the crowd. And the crowd's like audibly like, ooh, is he going to take it off? He's going to take it off. Nah, psych. <laughs> uh, Ray you can't goes, see anything. Ray goes for a head scissor, but Malenko catches him with a sidewalk slam. He then spends the next couple minutes wearing Mysterio down. Uh, he hits a beautiful T-bone suplex where he just tosses Mysterio across the ring. Um, Malenko goes for a superplex. Mysterio fights him off. They both go down to the floor. Uh, back in the ring, Mysterio gets the Hurricane Rana. Malenko kicks out. Probably the first guy to kick out of Mysterio's Hurricane Rana, if I was going to guess. Yeah, I think Tanay goes crazy on commentary saying that, that like nobody had ever done that. I never really knew that it was that like established of a finisher, but I can't I think mean, of he's anybody only been, who has. He's only been using it for a few. I mean, he's only been in WCW a couple months at this point. Yeah. Um, Mysterio goes for a springboard Hurricane Rana. Malenko catches him out of the air with a power bomb. Um, Mysterio sets up for a super Frankensteiner. Malenko blocks it, hits a power bomb off the top rope, covers, gets the one, two, three. Excellent match, and crowd showed it the respect it deserved. They give this 18 minutes, yeah. which this is, is so a, incredible. Just a battle. But yeah, the longest match on the show, I believe. I'll always wonder who it was backstage who was so in favor of giving so much time to the Cruiserweights, because I don't think that Bischoff knows one way or another. Like, yeah, these are the horses that I can give 20 minutes to. Let's probably do that. Sol- probably Sullivan would be my guess. I would guess. But it's one of the smartest things that they do. Because that was half the reason to buy the pay-per-views. It's yeah. like you would see the big match that like Hogan versus whoever, but also you were guaranteed yeah. for 20 minutes you'd have a great match every single time. Yeah. Every single pay-per-view in this era, you get a badass cruiserweight match. You get... Mysterio versus Malenko, Mysterio versus Dragon, Dragon versus Malenko, Mysterio versus Psychosis. Like, yeah, every single month you're getting a great match out of this division. And it's one of those things, too, where, like, when these guys come out, the crowds don't react to them. They either don't know them or they're not interested in cruiserweights. And it's they have to win them back over every single night, and they do. By the end of this match, like people are jumping out of their seats in the front row for two counts. Yeah. It's incredible to watch. Yeah, that's something I love about a WCW crowd is they respected good wrestling. Yeah. Like they would get into a good match, even if it was cold in a way that like was always tough to get a WWF crowd. That is a really good point, is that they had been trained that when yeah. wrestling is good to respect it. Whereas in WWE until like 2003, they were never, ever trained to respect good wrestling. And even to this, I think now you can pull off just like cold matches in WWE because the product has changed so much. But I feel like even into like the 2010s, if a match didn't have a story, the crowd just wasn't going to care because they've been trained that every match has to have a storyline. Every match has to have an angle to it. Yeah. It just goes to show, like, what you teach your fans to like is what they like. Like, that's just how it works. You tell people what to expect from you. Lee Marshall interviews Jeff Jarrett backstage. Jarrett is auditioning to be part of the Four Horsemen, and he'll be taking on the Giant tonight. Um, He's got Ric Flair backing him up. 
This Jeff Jarrett storyline was always a little weird to me. It was never entirely clear where this was supposed to be going. Jeff Jarrett, and I can't let this segment go away without saying this, looks like the biggest asshole who ever walked the face of the earth the entire time he has this gimmick. And I hate him so much. And the fact that basically the story is that he was a secret heel the whole time, who it turns out was just kind of using him, is good. Because everyone was so desperate to boo him that that's just how where it had to go. Yeah. I mean, always raising the question of whether the horsemen are heels or baby faces in this era. It literally changes literally from segment to segment. I think Benoit's a baby face and definitely. all the rest of them are heels. Well, they're definitely, they're, it feels like they're baby faces when they fight the NWO or the Dungeon of Doom, but otherwise they're heels. Yeah, they're huge dickheads. Like, they're not good guys. But, you know, they're good guys. As Arn Anderson would say, we're not good guys. We don't wear white hats. They definitely don't wear white hats. Guys, we have an Arn Anderson match on this show. How awesome is that? One of his last ones ever. That's so crazy. It feels like it's from a different era. Like, you don't see Arn on shows past, like, 93. Uh, Next up, we've got Diamond Dallas Page against Eddie Guerrero. Two future megastars who are not ready for prime time at this point. Yeah, it's... Eddie Guerrero is one of the greatest talents of all time. And in terms of in-ring stuff, he's already there. But my God, does babyface Eddie Guerrero in this era just suck so bad. He looks so bad in his, like, his singlet and his long tights and his mustache and his mullet, like... Just looks like shit. And he's not, well, I hate to put it this way, but he's not on steroids yet like he's going to be. So he's not big. Yeah, Yeah, he doesn't have a great body. And it's like just the fact that he's the best technical wrestler on the face of the earth really isn't enough to make it work. And DDP standing next to him looks like he's about seven foot six. Yeah. But DDP is also super lame because he's whittled down all the gimmicks, but he's still got the stupid cigar. Still got the cigar. He's got the battle bowl ring. I guess Guerrero has. I guess Guerrero beat him for the battle bowl ring. They're still doing this. Yeah. That's his whole gimmick is that he wears a ring. By the way, when uh, they just did this with MJF and AEW, no one gives a shit about rings. (laughs) No. Okay. There there has never been a good pro wrestling storyline that revolved around a ring. They don't look good on camera. They don't seem like a big deal. Stop it with the rings. Can't wait till AEW brings back the... Who brings back the Battle Bowl first, AEW or NXT? At this point, it's just an arms race to see who can copyright shit first. (laughs) So they're going to start copywriting shit that they don't even want. Chamber of Whores. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Dude, I would tune in if AEW did a Chamber of Whores match. I'd be there. Who's going in the electric chair first? Nick Patrick is the referee. He's under scrutiny for bad calls he's made to benefit the NWO in recent weeks. And he's a neck brace because somebody beat him up. Yep. He, uh, gosh, he's really such a gigantic part of the NWO storyline, and I always forget about that. But, like, whole shows would be all about, is Nick Patrick refereeing? Well, shit, we're going to get fucked then. 
Oh, he's so good in this role. I love, I mean, he knows how to work. He was, I mean, he's the son of a wrestler. He was a wrestler until he hurt his knees. Like, he is great in this role as a heel. Oh, incredible. Also, he also looks like he's seven foot six next to Eddie Guerrero. <laughs> that is an issue. Referees should not be big. I have this thing about, like, tall referees and tall managers and tall backstage interviewers are not good. Yeah, his whole career, Nick Patrick is, like, six feet tall. He's not huge. But whenever he'd referee, like, cruiserweights, he just looked way bigger than them. Yeah, like, Charles Robinson, great referee, makes everybody look huge. Uh, Pee Wee Anderson, great referee. Everybody looks big in there with him. There was a referee, and I can't remember who it was. I think it was just briefly in Japan, but he was, like, six foot eight. And all anyone could look at the whole time was just this guy. Like, when is he about to start whooping some ass? There's no place in this business for a referee that big. Nope. Um, not much happens here. Page is in control for a while. Uh, Guerrero gets a drop kick to start his comeback, but Page shuts it down with a flapjack. Page hits a power bomb and then a diamond cutter. This match just didn't click for whatever reason. No, it really didn't. I was surprised to see Page win. Basically completely clean. Uh, they, You can tell that they do have plans for him, though I don't know what they thought. I can't believe they ever thought it was going to be like him going over Randy Savage were the plans for him down the road. But it's not too long after this they're going to do the angle where he gets a diamond cut haul and get one over on the NWO. Like, it's one case where, like, nepotism really did work. Like, nepotism in wrestling is almost always bad. But in this case, it's just everyone loved him so much backstage that even though he wasn't really ready, they put him in that position, and he kills it, and then you're off to the races. It changes his career. Yeah. I mean, the diamond cutter is already over. Yes. People are already popping for the diamond cutter. But he is not over or good. It's not time. (laughs) Uh, we go backstage where Mike Tanay is with Randy Savage. Savage announces the winner of a Slim Jim contest. Uh, a woman from Romulus, Michigan wins. Where is Romulus, Michigan, Steve? Is that a real place? Yeah, actually, it's it, so it's actually you would you you may have even been there because it's where Detroit Metro Airport is located. Oh, well, then shit. Yeah, I spent like 10 percent of my life there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's a yeah, it's suburb of Detroit and the airport is there. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Good for her. I wonder what she did with her actual fucking monster truck that she won. Can you drive those things on the road? They can't be street legal, can they? <laughs> I would just be terrified I would accidentally run over a car. That's the thing, is that it's not like if you like rear-ended somebody, you would stop. You <laughs> would just kill just them. over somebody. You kill them. Whoops. Well, I guess I'm making a run for it in my monster truck on the news. Uh, they plug that you can listen to the audio from the pay-per-view on WCWWrestling.com. They say this is the first time they've done this. This is an innovation years ahead of its time. It's insane. Like, there couldn't have been that much of an audience for it, because... Oh, it's like 10 people on the internet at this point. Yeah, there is, this is an era where, like, home computers aren't even very common, much less people using the internet consistently to watch wrestling lo- content. And, like, your 
56k modem. I don't even know how how well that could support streaming audio. But my favorite thing too is that like they're doing stuff for like, hey, we're welcome to an AOL chat room where some guy sitting next to Chris Jericho will type out what he says. Love that. Well, yeah, they don't want to end up having to type like Shawn Michaels. That, and we'll always have treasure that memory. Yes, and but I really fun. do. I really do appreciate that when they did the NXT in your house show, they did like a callback to that. I wonder how, because Shawn Michaels did that to be funny, as he did with everything at the time. But I wonder if like everybody that Shawn Michaels meets brings that up at some point. It's like, hey, you ever, you know how to use your fucking phone, or you just gotta yeah, type at it like this. Type. Asshole. <laughs> Mike today interviews Dean Malenko. He says anyone who wants a title shot can have one. Dean Malenko, one of the worst promos that has ever sure. lived. There was a reason he didn't ever speak in ECW. It's so funny to me that they gave him the gimmick of the Iceman because he has such a resting bitch face, but they use it to get away with the fact that he also can't show emotion in his i imagine he's a really sweet person in real life like very loving and giving and possesses emotions but fuck me if this man has ever smiled to me it would freak me out you know it feels like he's one of the few guys who's like never done podcasts maybe he did jericho's at some point but like he was never a regular on the podcast circuit for some reason. Not at all. When he left to go to AEW is actually one of the most shocking signings that they did for me. Because I just, you don't even think of him as having like his own motivations or whatever. He's just kind of like a guy who's around and never talks to anyone ever. agent with WWE for almost 20 years. And one of the best. Like they would give yeah. him all the best matches. <laughs> Um, then we see Ted DiBiase in the crowd with the giant, uh, the giant is holding the U S title, even though he's not the champion, he just stole the belt from Ric Flair. Um, DiBiase says that Jarrett turned down a spot in the NWO. Okay. So when I say that the British bulldog would have been one of the worst possible fits for the NWO, let me take that back. This version of Jeff Jarrett would have been the shittiest, least cool NWO member. Yeah. But also, when the fuck did they offer him a spot? And why? Seriously quest yeah, seriously questioning um their talent scouting abilities. Well, is he from WWE? Yes. Yeah. Alright, we'll bring him in. What do you think of Ted DiBiase as the NWO's manager? On one hand, functionally it, it works just fine. Like on this show where he's basically just cutting promos for all of them as they walk out. It's pretty cool just to have, like, that representative. On the other hand, he is such an ill fit for that particular group. Like, fucking churchy Ted DiBiase, and he's old as shit with his dad glasses on. He's the spokesman for this company. It doesn't really work. And the NWO doesn't need a mouthpiece. Like, they they have at least three promos in their stable that are much better than Ted DiBiase. Yeah. Now, this never fits, and he's quickly de-emphasized. I almost wish, I don't wish that Hall weren't wrestling, but I almost wish this was were Hall's role, is that he's the like the spokesman. He's the one who cuts shit-eating promos before everybody's matches. I feel like he could have killed with that. 
Um, so should note that they come in through the crowd. They, they do this all night with the NWO, and I really liked this. This is something they probably should have kept this going, but my guess is they like it was a security concern to have them have to come through the crowd every time. Yeah, the challenge with something like the NWO or any invasion storyline is how do you make it feel real when it clearly isn't? And like just the small details they have here, like the way you know it's the NWO place is that they just like shittily hung up a banner yeah. that says NWO above this entrance, and then they just blocked it out with their security. And then Ted DiBiase just stands at that entrance all night and like waves people in from their cars, where they like hop out of the limousine and like sprint into the arena so WCW security won't tackle them. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, like the idea that these guys literally like changed out in the parking lot and then just like came in the arena through a side door and they come in through the crowd because they're not actually part of the company. I think this was it for this. I don't think they did this again after this, though. It rules, but I can absolutely see why this is not a good long term idea. (laughs) No, it's a logistical nightmare to have to get them through the crowd every time. They've got like seven security guards to get them through the crowd. But they look so so sick yeah. uh, so it's the giant against Jeff Jarrett the giants got DiBiase backing him up Jarrett has Ric Flair uh, Jarrett is able to stick and move for a little while but the giant gets hold of him and just sends him flying across the ring Jarrett manages to lock in a sleeper hold giant fights out levels him with a big boot giant wears Jarrett down Flair gets on the mic and tells Jarrett to kick giants ass this is that was my favorite part of the match, where not even looking at the ring, he just starts yelling, "Get up and kick his ass!" Woo! That is not supportive, Ric Flair. That's just being mean. They go out to the floor. Flair gets hit. Uh, Flair gets giant with a nut shot, and as a result, Jared is disqualified as the four horsemen hit the ring. Uh, they're building to the NWO against the horsemen, but. Doesn't really pay off because Flair and Anderson are both dealing with injuries. I mean, Anderson is pretty much done. Yeah, and uh, Flair's gone till like the middle of 97. With I think he's got a shoulder injury. Which is a shame because you know Flair would have played just a much bigger part in this whole storyline early on than he did if it weren't for the fact that he was injured the whole time. Yeah. I mean, I've felt like flair would have made more sense to be the champion when the nwo showed up than the giant like i think it should have been flair losing the belt to hogan instead of giant yeah just the symbolism of that of like this man represents wcw and this is who the nwo was screwing to take the belt away yeah Next up, we've got Six against Chris Jericho. They're both WCW newcomers. I think this is Six's first WCW match, and Jericho just debuted at Fall Brawl last month. This version of Chris Jericho sucks. The suckiest. Just the la- <laughs> He literally has, like, Journey cover band music as his oh, entrance. He's yeah. wearing sparkly jackets. He's just come from Mexico, okay? And in Mexico, you're there to be a teen beat heartthrob who smiles a lot and waves at the crowd and blows kisses and wears very sparkly, bright-colored clothes and spangly stuff because that's just the style there. He's brought that here, and it sucks balls. Uh, He's also had his run in Smoky Mountain with Lance Storm, where him and Storm got in trouble with Cornette because they they wouldn't have sex with the groupies. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> I love that story. Like, just the most Jim Cornette thing that he's, like, offended that his heart throbs, like, won't hook up with the female fans. Say, what do you mean you won't satisfy the rats? They'll stop coming to the shows, you idiots. <laughs> Gotta live the gimmick. My God. Nobody has been more fascinated with sex and wrestling than Jim Cornette. No, yeah, we probably shouldn't get into, uh, yeah, no. Nah, he's no. litigious. Let's not go there. Um, Nick Patrick is the referee for this one, so we know what direction this is going in. Oh, yeah. Six hits the first big move when he drop kicks Jericho off the top rope. He follows that up with a somersault plancha, then a dragon whip. Jericho fights back with a backdrop, a spin kick, and then a crossbody out to the floor. He hits the lion's salt. That should be it, but Patrick's count is incredibly slow. Jericho headbutts six. That, again, should be the pin. Patrick is once again slow to make the count. Six then hits a spin kick, and suddenly Patrick has rediscovered his ability to count, and that's all. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Pretty good match. I mean, it's pretty good. I never felt like these two guys really ever clicked. There's no, just something kind of off. just did a show last week where they wrestled each other. Like, they had, like, 20 matches together during their careers, and I don't think any of them... They're two guys you think would be good together, and they're just not. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, styles that are too similar don't work. And Jericho... If Jericho had bad chemistry with somebody, like he would stink it out. That that's the story of his yeah. whole career. Yeah. Some guys he just didn't click with and they could never get it going. Yep. Uh, Mike Tanay interviews Lex Luger. He's got a match with Arn Anderson tonight that stems from Anderson being mad that Luger submitted at Fall Brawl in the War Games match. Yep. So that's our next match. We've got the former horseman Luger against the current horseman Anderson. This is one of Arn's last matches. He wrestles a little bit more after this. I think he's in World War III, but uh, that is it for him. I mean, he's dealing with his neck problem at this point, and he's going to try to rehab it, but he's ultimately going to realize he has to retire. And that's a shame because the world definitely lost something when it lost Arn Anderson in the ring. And this shows that this match should not be good. It's oh. pretty fucking good. It's Lex Luger against an injured Arn Anderson, and it's still a damn good match. Like, one of the things that we've explored over the course of this podcast is really we've kind of examined the slander that big guys have gotten throughout the course of their careers, like your Sids and your Lugers and your Bigelows and stuff like that. And we've kind of found that, like, actually, those guys are a lot fucking better than we ever gave them credit for being. Because, like, the work rate police would always hold them back. Lex Luger doesn't deserve... the work rate police. Yeah, literally, that's basically what our podcast has been. Ever (laughs) since it became, like, a Sid fan cast. Like, if Meltzer has an opinion about a big guy, we probably have the opposite opinion. But, like, Luger was always a lot better than people gave him credit for being. If he cared, he could deliver. Yeah. Um, Luger is in control early. He is just throwing Arn around the ring. Arn managed to hit a spine buster, but he can't follow it up. 
Luger's in control for the next couple minutes. Arn makes a comeback. The ref gets bumped. Arn gets a chair. He swings for Luger, but Luger ducks, and Arn hits the ring post with the chair. Uh, Luger then uh, catapults Arn into the ring post, drags Arn back in the ring, torture racks him, wins by submission. Uh, Luger refuses to break the rack, and um, he's ultimately taken out on a stretcher. This may have been his last match. I, I feel like I have this memory that he's in World War III. This feels like this should be it for him in a while after he's taken out on the stretcher. Yeah, I mean, it certainly would be a good time for it to be his last match. But I'm sure that they probably ran it back somewhere along the way, and then he decided he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, um, the story... I've heard from him on like when he realized he had to retire was he was trying to rehab and he was at the gym and he ran into a friend of his and the guy kind of like slapped him on the back to say hi. And like Arn's arm went numb for hours after that. Ooh. And it fi- like it just finally like he had the epiphany, like if, you know, a slap on the back is going to cause that. Like, how the hell am I supposed to get in the ring and take bumps? I'm really glad that he made the decision he made because he's still with us to this day. He's still a part of the wrestling industry, a big part of AEW right now. Yeah, love him as Cody's manager. So, yeah, so bless him for taking, doing what a lot of wrestlers couldn't do and taking the right opportunity to leave. Lee Marshall plugs the WCW hotline where you can find out what's going on with Sting, and then he interviews Harlem Heat, Colonel Rob Parker, and Sister Sherry. Oh, Sister Sherry. I kind of feel like they should bring the hotline back. Like, they always blur the number out here because they're like, oh, it's no longer active. They don't want people calling it. I feel like they should either buy this number or just like put a different one up and then like have it like it could just be like a fun Easter egg if somebody calls it. Yeah, just have it be like on the hotline today. Is Sting going to go to WWE and wrestle Steve Austin? <laughs> just like have Oak, like you could have just had Okerlund do it like way back in the day, and just I'm sure yeah, he would have loved Mean that. Gene, just have Mean Gene record these forever. Yeah, just like get a bunch in the can of me and Gene just being like, what WWE superstar may jump ship today? You'll be amazed. Vince McMahon, mauled by a pack of wolves. <laughs> and no, actually, you have listened all the way to the end of the call, and actually he just got tackled by a puppy on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, next up, we've got the Faces of Fear against Steve McMichael and Chris Benoit. This is a continuation of the Dungeon of Doom versus Four Horsemen feud that's been going for a while now and not ending anytime soon, although this turns out to be a pretty big development in it. Um, the Faces of Fear are Ming and the Barbarian. Um, they're backed up by Jimmy Hart. The Horsemen are accompanied by Deborah and Woman. Um, Ming and McMichael trade shoulder tackles. Um, Ming and Barbarian proceed to get heat on Mongo. Amazing that we've done Steve McMichael shows two of the last three weeks. That is pretty amazing, and not something that I particularly relish. Like it was two different companies, two different Mongos. Benoit tags in. He gets hit with a massive belly-to-belly suplex off the top rope. Um. 
but McMichael breaks up the pin. There's double-diving headbutts by the faces of fear. McMichael once again has to break the pin up. Shivani then explains that the one-save rule is no longer in existence. Well, that's good to know, because I never knew that it was in existence. <laughs> that's an old NWA thing, and I think that I actually I, I like the idea of it, that you only get to ma- you only get to break up the, a pin one time during the match. And if you do it again, you get disqualified because otherwise, like, why aren't you would just break up? Like, they have to kind of come up with convoluted reasons. Somebody doesn't break a pin up. I mean, it does make a lot of sense. It would add a lot of urgency to the match when somebody used their save, too, because they would be like, okay, now we're in sudden death. And that just goes right along with, like, actually utilizing the tag rope and a 10 count if you're not holding it and you can get disqualified that way. You know, like actual tag team psychology. (laughs) Um, there's a suplex and a splash from the faces of fear. McMichael pulls Benoit out of the ring. Ming goes after Mongo, who nails him in the head with a metal briefcase. Benoit then hits the diving headbutt and gets the pin. Uh, the Dungeon of Doom, who we've seen sitting in the front row, jump the railing. So it's Conan, uh, Big Boss Man, and Sullivan. They all go after Benoit. They manage to first they take Mongo out. And there's a moment where Benoit just goes after all, like, five guys and holds his own for a second before he gets overwhelmed. This is, like, the only really cool moment on this show. And I almost can't even tell if this was planned, because everybody's just kind of, like, tottering around, not doing much. And, like, Chris Benoit's just, like, sprinting up to them and punching them dead in the face. All of them. Like, kick, kick, punch, punch, jump out of the ring, kick that guy, jump in the ring, kick that guy. Yeah. (laughs) Until Ming's finally like, all right, settle down, shorty, and kicks him in the face. Yeah, Benoit gets absolutely destroyed. Um, Sullivan beats up both Benoit and Mongo with the briefcase. Hart um, kind of intimidates Woman, and he says something about how Woman should have called Sullivan on Friday night like she was supposed to. So this yeah. is like the big, really the beginning of like the Benoit-Sullivan feud incorporating Woman. I don't feel like this is ever sufficiently explained. Maybe I'm not remembering something, but it feels like they never just like do the promo where they're like, okay, woman is married to Kevin Sullivan, but she is now hooking up with Chris Benoit. Yeah. I never really understood the point of trying to like work the boys in the back about this. Well, it actually was happening though. Yeah. But like, I don't understand but Sullivan was trying so hard to convince them that what was happening was, in fact, happening. And it was. And it was. <laughs> it was real. Unclear, as we've said, it's unclear in what order these things happened. I think we've both speculated that it's very possible that, like, this started happening and that's why they made a storyline out of it. Yeah. I, we cannot tell if, A, Sullivan forced them together and then they started hooking up. Or B, uh, like it happens in the opposite order. It's hard to say because it's impossible to pull apart what's kayfabe and what's real. Yeah. It's a nightmare trying to figure this out. And two of the three people who know the truth are dead, and Sullivan has always been kind of cagey about it. Because he's the murderer. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. Not true. 
Uh, Ted DiBiase introduces the Outsiders, and we've got uh, WW World Tag Team title matches. Harlem Heat defend against the Outsiders. Um, <coughs> Harlem Heat are accompanied by Colonel Rob Parker and Sherry. Dusty basically says that Parker's an idiot and he needs to stay out of the way and let Sherry run things, which proves to be correct. Fucking feminist Dusty Rhodes. Hey, you need to get that man out of there and let the woman run the show. She needs to be the quarterback. And I'm like, hell yeah, Dusty. Truth. True words never spoken. Uh, the crowd is absolutely buzzing for this one. Like, they are hot for this. They are hot for Kevin Nash and Scott Hall in yeah. particular. The buzz right before their music hits. Like, you only get that for, like, really special acts throughout wrestling history. Where, like, the fans are just ready for that music. They're just ready for these guys. They fucking love them. Booker hits a crescent kick and then a hip toss that sends Hall out to the floor. For some reason, that is not a disqualification, even though WCW still has the over-the-top rope rule in place. Yep. Um, crowd pops when Nash and Stevie Ray tag in. Battle of the big men. Stevie Ray is a huge guy. Like, gigantic, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. He makes Booker look small, and Booker's like 6'4". Yeah. Um... Stevie gets the advantage and sets Nash up for a scissors kick from Booker. The Outsiders turn the tide after Nash gets a cheap shot on Booker from the apron. Hall then hits a choke slam, but Stevie breaks up the pin. Hall hits a fallaway slam. Sherry gets up on the apron and slaps him. Hall retaliates by kissing her. Crowd goes wild for that. For some reason... Casual sexual assault has been made for gigantic pops throughout wrestling history. It's a bummer. <laughs> Loud razor chant. That's the funny thing, too, is that they don't chant Scott. I don't ever remember hearing a crowd ever chant Scott Hall. They chant only razor. chant razor. <laughs> that really didn't help with that lawsuit WWE's filed. Booker hits a spin wheel kick. Um, Hall gets a sleeper hold. Booker fights out. He tags in Stevie. Stevie hits a gorilla press slam as he throws Hall into Nash, then clotheslines Hall out to the floor. Stevie hits a side slam. Booker follows up with the Harlem hangover. I am never not impressed by the Harlem hangover. Like, what an amazing move. And, like, what a hard move to do well. What a hard move to take. It's a front flip leg drop performed by a man with the longest legs in the history of the world. Yeah. And he doesn't know where he's hitting you with it no. unless he like front flips perfectly. That's hard enough when you're doing like a 450 it, and you just kind of vaguely know if you get around enough, you'll hit it right. With this one, if you're wrong with your hip, you'll crush his face. Yeah. I'm always surprised it doesn't break somebody's jaw. Later in his career, he starts doing it smartly, where he like does it like way off to the side and just like stretches his leg out to get him a little bit. But here, no, he's he hits this stiff every yeah. single time. Yeah, this might as well have been real. God damn. It probably would put you out. Shit. 250-pound dude laying that big honk of leg on you. Harlem Heat appear to have the match won. 
Parker gets in the ring with his cane. Nash gets the cane away from him. He hits Stevie with it, and Hall gets the pin. The Outsiders win the tag belts. Nice pop for that. This was a good enough match. It was good enough. It probably could have been better, but does it really need to be? I don't know. I, I enjoyed it well enough. Yeah. Uh, we get a promo for World War Three. We got to do a World War Three sometime. Secretly. I, I don't know what the general consensus is on World War Three. I think it's one of the coolest gimmick ideas I've ever heard. I'm such a mark for World War Three. I hope... Maybe this will be like a Saudi Arabia thing that they'll bring back the three ring battle royal. Just like three separate battle royals going on at the same time. Yeah. Three winners. Then they get in the ring and fight it out. Yeah. 60 guys. Like you'd never be able to see anything that's going on. Like when those matches first start, they suck. You have no Uh, idea what's happening. Like, yeah, standard definition, like 90s TVs and like multiple split screens looks awful. Today, today you could pull it off with HD cameras. But also today, like as much as like the big spectacle of it is one thing, you could do this over the course of like three weeks culminating in the mid this could be like a whole month just do like three battle royals inside of a giant cage and then the triple threat winner wins the title or whatever bullshit you're doing it's amazing that no version of this concept exists right now it's so cool i'm gonna have to check if world if wwe still owns the world war three trademark i don't think they do i thought that's what they were gonna call the war games that they were gonna do in AEW, but they didn't yeah, I'm actually a little surprised they didn't, because again, I think this trademark is available. Because if you're going to do war games and call it something else, World War III is just as good. Yeah. Um, Hogan does a promo in the crowd along with the giant. He plugs the new Three Ninjas movie that he just finished filming, and he says, Santa with Muscles is about to open. Oh, good. The best <laughs> movie ever made. That- and I think that Three Ninjas, that was uh, number three. I think that went straight to video. That's a good movie, though. I do like that movie. <laughs> I do like that one. I'm a big, big Three Ninjas fan, to be honest. Rocky Colton Tum Tum, baby. Rocky does, in fact, love Emily. I Some of the most inspired writing that I've ever seen was written about the basketball scene where he performs ninjutsu to play basketball better. <laughs> That's some good stuff. All right, it's main event time for the WSW World title. Hollywood Hogan defends against the Macho Man Randy Savage. Hogan comes out wearing, like, a spiky-haired wig. What the fuck was going on here? Okay, so apparently this was supposed to be Sting. Like, he was wearing a Sting wig? Uh, yeah, is he dressed up as Sting for Halloween? That would actually be kind of funny if he did, like, come out as Sting for Halloween. Yeah, when... Before Give I watch these some shows, face paint though. Yeah, before I watch these shows, sometimes I'll read like reviews other people did of the shows just to see what like people thought of at the time about them. And apparently, all of them said that like, yeah, it was shit talking Sting by wearing his. You would never now think that it was Sting by looking at it. He just looks like an asshole. Uh, loved Savage's Halloween gear here, like black with orange and white stripes. He looks awesome. The man was born for Halloween. <laughs> Um, Savage gets the advantage, he beats up Hogan, 
He steals his sunglasses and wig. That sounds like 30 seconds of action, but it was actually like five minutes. There's more stalling in the first part of this match than I've ever seen in any other match in my entire life. Even for Hogan. Even for Savage. It's like somebody at... And it's especially funny considering what's going to happen at the end of this show. That they just spend like five minutes doing nothing. Yeah. Hogan gets the advantage with some shitty offense and works Savage over. Elizabeth comes down to the ring. The announcers question whose side she's on. We should note that she turned on Savage earlier in the year to shack up with Ric Flair. Yeah, but they're also, they're not so much acknowledging that so much as they're clearly trying to make a play on the whole Hogan-Savage thing from the 80s. Oh, yeah, totally. So so this is still very much a, a, the Mega Power split-up thing. This is almost the match that we should have gotten then with, like, a heel Hogan who absolutely is trying to fuck Elizabeth. Yeah, Hogan's de- no question Hogan's got the lust in his eyes now. Yeah, pulling her away from him by tempting her with, like, money and being, like, a big star or whatever. Savage slams Hogan, gets him with a knee to the back. Hogan goes to the floor, pulls Liz in front of himself as a human shield, and then hits Savage with a clothesline. What a um, dick. Hogan hits the big boot. He pulls Liz into the ring to get her, give her a front row view. He goes for the leg drop, but he misses. Uh, Hogan gets a weapon from DiBiase, but Liz gets it away from him. Um, uh, DiBiase, uh, Hogan accidentally hits the ref as Nick Patrick runs in to take over the officiating. Savage hits the scoop slam and the elbow drop. Patrick counts one, two, he grabs his neck rather than count to three. Won't make the three count. Oh, no, his neck hurts so bad. Oh, no. Savage goes after Patrick. Hogan gets the weapon from before. Savage manages to get away from him, and he hits Hogan with it. Looks like he's going to win, but DiBiase and Giant interfere. Um, Patrick recovers to count the three after Giant puts Hogan on top. Just... Total screw job finish. Really bad match. Yeah, th- this match sucks. It's there are some matches during this period where Hogan will really like throw his all into trying to make them work. This is not one of those. They're both just going through the motions, and I, I can hardly blame them. It doesn't really seem like it matters that much. And this is all, which we didn't know at the time, but this is all just an appetizer to the real main event. <laughs> Yeah, so the giant, like, grabs a, like, silver, like, I don't know what to call this thing, like, platter of ice water, pours it on Hogan to revive him. Sure. (laughs) Hogan gets up, gets on the mic, talks shit, says he's, you know, tired of this place, he's bored, he's the king of Hollywood. And then bagpipes begin to play. And man, the chills that go down your spine in that moment. Like, even knowing what was going to happen, I was still like, man, here he comes. This kicks ass. Yeah. And Roddy Piper comes through the curtain. Roddy Piper in WCW. What a moment. 
When was the last time Roddy Piper had been on wrestling television? Um, uh, not that he had done the Gold Dust um match at WrestleMania this year. Oh, that was this year. Okay. Yeah, it hadn't been an incredibly long time, but I don't think anybody was expecting him in WCW. Fuck no. Like this is an incredible get for them, especially to put him right into the main event with Hogan, because there's still some part of everyone's childhood thoughts of just like who would really win in that match. And we never got the answer. Yeah. Neither one would ever do a job. So we just never found out who was the better man. Um, Hogan sheepishly tells Piper that Piper was a big part of building wrestling too. You know, they were running about 50, 50 for a while there. Hogan, says he's here to break Hogan's monotony. He says he's not here to represent the WCW, the NWO, the NWA, the CWA, the SOB, but I can be one bad SOB when I want to be. Pretty good line. Pretty good line. Uh, I should note, at this point, we are two hours and 52 minutes into the show, so we are rapidly running out of time here. Shouldn't be a problem. Should be able to just wrap this promo up pretty quickly, but oh my God, does this go on forever. Piper won't stop talking. He has an open mic and no one's told him what to say. And if you know him for at all, you know that that's an open invitation for him to talk for a thousand years. Yeah, he just will not shut the fuck up here and get to whatever his closing line is supposed to be. And it's not like they can just cut the feed because there's no, like, stopping point that he's arrived at. Like, it's not like he's, like, stopping and then starting it back up again. He just keeps droning on. Yeah, he says he is just as big an icon in wrestling as Hogan. He is just as big a movie star. He's a millionaire, too. Really likable guy. Um, he says he started fighting pro when he was 15 years old. He's had over 6,000 matches. He's been stabbed three times and he is the only guy Hogan has never been able to beat. I don't know that that's, I do wonder if I go back through like all the cagematch.com listings, if there's somebody else who has a winning record over Hulk Hogan. <laughs> That that might almost be a fun project to go back and be like, all right, who could Hulk Hogan never beat? Turns out it's Greg Gagne. The Rock? I mean, they only had two matches, right? And Rock won them both, yeah. There, there might need to might be, be... Yeah, it uh, might be Rock. Goldberg? I don't think Hogan ever beat Goldberg. I don't think Short list. Beat. Hogan and Yokozuna were one and one against each other. Trying to think, who's got a W over Hogan? Who Hogan didn't immediately get it back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he beat, he beat Warrior in that rematch. I'm trying to think if anyone beat him in the entire 1980s, and I'm not sure that they did. <laughs> I mean, Andre at Shea Stadium. But he got that one back. Yeah, he did. That's a good question. I'll have to look it's into a that. Short list. Yeah, I mean. In the entire decade of the 80s, yeah. How many times did he get pinned? So that'll be my homework for this week, and I'll be back with a with a fine book report on that next time around. But yeah, so they just keep talking and talking and talking, and like finally they just run out of satellite time, and they have to go off the air. 
it's embarrassing. This is not nearly as famous as the other no. time that they had to go off the air. No. And how destructive that was. But not nearly, yeah, not nearly as bad as when they missed like the entire Hogan or uh, Goldberg DDP main event a couple years after this. But like bad and like it's embarrassing. Yeah, it's just horribly executed segment. There was no reason for Piper's promo to make air. There's I think no the reason sh- for Piper to cut a promo. Yeah. If he's if he wants to do a promo for the live crowd, that's fine. But like. The show really should have just ended when he came out. That's I fully totally agree. He comes out can, on stage. Hogan looks scared. There you go. And then you can build to um, Hogan, and uh, I mean you could like you could build to Piper's first promo on Nitro. Like that's something you can promote a week in advance. That next week we're gonna have Roddy Piper here. You can promote that all through the show, and it could be the main event of the show. Piper speaks yeah. next week. Roddy Piper has a live mic, and we got no control over what he's going to say. Anything could happen. Yeah. So I mean. I will say this was a pretty flat show that I feel like this Piper surprise did kind of save because without this, this would have been a very uninteresting night. Yeah, when I was texting you about it earlier, I said that it just feels like flat and lifeless in a way that shows during this didn't. Like there was usually so much like nervous energy and anticipation going into these shows. Crowds would be crazy because they don't know what nuts things about to happen. You just didn't get that vibe from this one, aside from when Nash and Hall were coming out. Yeah. So, yeah, that is a wrap for uh, Halloween Havoc 1996. Um, Definitely a letdown compared to the previous couple pay-per-views. This is, I mean, we're starting to see there's some issue. There's still some issues with this WCW company in terms of their creative direction. Like, just a a lack of discipline. Like, this... They, the WWF, I don't think ever would have blown an ending segment like this. Oh, no. Because there would have. And that's the thing, too, is I always wondered how, like, agents and producers worked in WCW. Because I know mostly it was just it like, like they didn't Hamilton. even have any. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, who's telling them specifically point for point, this is how your finish is going to be? You worry about the match, but the finish will be this. Because that's why WWF finishes tend to at least be like on point to some degree, especially when it matters. It's weird to have a WWE finish. that's just crazy and long and it never ends. Vince would have been like walking out onto stage to tell them to cut the mics. Yeah. Um, so yeah, next time we'll be covering no mercy 2007, which I think we're primarily interested in for the Batista Great Kali Punjabi prison match. We do love a good Punjabi prison, don't we? One of the things that we've mentioned on this podcast dozens and dozens and dozens of times since we've started is just throwaway lines here or there about Batista's heroic, legendary carry job in this crazy Punjabi prison match, which is probably the greatest performance of his lifetime. And of many others. We haven't actually had a, a chance to explain that incredibly insane thing that we both think. But I can't wait to finally talk about it. Yeah. Uh, this is also the night where Triple H wins and Lou, Randy Orton wins the world title. Triple H wins the world title and Randy Orton wins the world title again. And poor Maga does not win the world title. 
pretty much the only one who didn't. So yeah, should be an interesting one. All that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next time.